Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. Don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. It's Monday. <laughs> and you are watching AM to DM. All right, let's kick off Thanksgiving week with the true spirit of the holiday, arguing about sides. Yes! 538 tweeted, here's what your part of America eats on Thanksgiving. And let's just take a look at that. I am going to serve you some Vanna White. Oh yeah, show me, I show love walk, this. Walk okay. me through it. In the Northeast, mm. we have squash, mm. cousin of lacrosse. Mm. Uh, we have rolls and biscuits in the, in the North, or the Midwest. Okay, okay. Oh God, they, they make You're it so You're just so easier. mad at the Northwest that you want to get to that, it. That's true, that's true. Mac and cheese in the Southeast. Right. I love this. Cornbread in Texas, mm -hmm. Louisiana, I mm. love this. Shout out, I feel like gumbo should be here for Louisiana. <laughs> I'm just gonna put that there. That I like that you said Vanna White, but I'm also getting a little weatherman vibe. Yeah, like thank a, you. a front of green uh, beans uh, and casserole uh, is moving uh, in. Once a year, <laughs> once a year, people in the Midwest eat something green. Okay, okay. And apparently 365, everybody else eats something green all the time because this is salad. Yeah, that's it's a weird graphic. Let's talk about that. It's a weird graphic. Do you understand it? Yeah, I, I do not. I, I do not. It. It's, um, it's a lot going on. It's To me, it looks like somebody just got lazy and was like, ah, you know what, salad for the rest of the country. Uh, okay. yeah. Well, a lot of people had a lot of feelings about this data. Um, almost all of them are summed up perfectly by this tweet from Anna Marie Cox. If you bring salad to my Thanksgiving, you will eat it outside by yourself. <laughs> all right, I don't know, California has a lot of like electoral votes. I'm, here's, the, here's the thing, a lot okay. of people do eat salad. Yes. A lot of people do eat salad. You were mentioning that people from different regions. Yeah, I, uh, a Twitter follower from Idaho said they're, they're sat like they call it salad, mm -hmm. but it's actually like jello, green jello. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true for any of you. It feels like there could be a subset of salad. Because when I think salad, I'm thinking like lettuce, tomato. Yeah, like a little, little, uh, little iceberg I've lettuce. I've never, I don't know if I've ever, pasta salad? I don't know, so. It could be that. But this is, here's the thing. So. This is the thing for me. Mm -hmm. This piece is from 2015. And Vox Media does this every year. And I'm not going to knock them for it. Okay. If something gets traffic, it gets traffic. Good on you. But I swear to God, every at Thanksgiving, they're like, ooh, here we come. Here it comes. They tweet this out. And then the entire timeline loses its mind. Everybody's like, what the hell's up with salad? Then you see some people from California being like, actually, salad's pretty good. And everybody gets in this big fight about it. And that's you, the spirit of Thanksgiving. You might even call it an annual tradition. You Fox. might, yes, you might yeah. call it. I love this. A warm-up for fighting with your family. All right. Just everybody's just everybody's sharpening their knives I a little think it's bit. That's great. Yeah. I love some drama on You this like title. to argue about it a little bit. It's fun. It's you know. I, I, I have questions. Uh, you know, I'm gonna be in the northeast for for you know, squash, I oh, guess. Oh, how do you feel about squash? I mean, I like, I think it makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. if I think of like savory, you know I love a butternut squash soup. Ooh. Oh, I would love that. Oh my God, butternut squash soup as like a, a appetizer. A little brown things. sugar in there. That's great. See, there you go. Do you have a favorite side? Listen, at my heart, I'm a mac and cheese man. Okay. I yeah. love mac and cheese. Yeah. But for the holidays, mm -hmm. it's gotta be stuffing. Because mm. you can't get stuffing in June. You That's can't get true. stuffing any other time of well, the year. Well, if you do, it has a whole different meaning, so. And stuffing to me, it's just more bread. And I love bread. <laughs> okay, well, I will rep for mac. Here's the thing about macaroni and cheese. True, you can get mac and cheese year around. Absolutely. Um, but I do feel like Thanksgiving mac and cheese is a little more dramatic. Mm. It's like the, the three, the four, the five cheeses. All, you know what I mean? It's it's like literally different in density. Like people actually bring mm -hmm. out their it's real holiday mac and cheese. Okay, I will take that argument. Okay. I like it a lot. I'll just we can agree on this. Thanksgiving's all about the sides. 
Yes. Because turkey sure does need a lot of help. All right, let's get in the holiday spirit. What is your favorite? Cannot live without it. Don't invite me if it's not on the table side at Thanksgiving. Let us know using the hashtag AM2. That's your favorite side to eat. But do you make it, though? Do you make it? Uh, Lizette Garcia says, I'm in the Northeast and have never heard of squash as a side. Princess Leia, cornbread and mac and cheese cusp here. Oh, I like that. It's like Thanksgiving <laughs> Zodiac. <laughs> I like that a lot. I'm a cornbread rising. <laughs> I like that. What's your moon appetizer? I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk about these recounts. Mm. and ele- I don't even know what to call but the midterm. That midterm elections. We For about knows? three or four at this point. Um, Stacey Abrams ended her campaign Friday, leaving many voters in Georgia frustrated and dispirited. Quote, we are just in a crazy messed up situation right now that everybody's talking about. And I personally feel disrespected because our ancestors worked so hard that we could have the right to vote. Now that quote comes from Latasha Colbert, a woman Darren interviewed for his most recent story. Stacey Abrams, Georgia voters knew it was going to happen. Darren joins us now. Good morning, Darren. Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so you spoke with two dozen black Georgians in eight different counties across the state. What did they have to say? Yeah, I was assigned to go talk to these folks and um, it it really, I think, I immediately sort of got the sense that there was a real, a stark contrast between the way that the national political class was talking about this election um, after it sort of shaped, how it shaped out on, on Tuesday night um, and, and how regular Georgians, everyday people, felt about the election. And they, they were upset. Um, the thing that you have to sort of um, know about Georgia is that it's sort of been the epicenter of um, voter suppression. And, and what her candidacy did was, was get people, I think, to separate themselves a little bit from that. And they um, were sort of really allowed themselves to um, indulge in this idea that there was going to be a black woman uh, that was going to be the first um, black woman governor in the history of the country, really in the, the cradle of the civil rights movement, a place that, um, you know, historically um, has been, uh, you know, been one of the, the, the major, you know, larger, most populous um, the, uh, states. And so what people sort of, I think, were upset about was that, you know, they had this sort of historic moment, this this time to do this. And, and um, for it to not happen, I think, was due to a lot of different factors. But I think people are sort of traumatized by this idea that, you know, the secretary of state, who's the chief elections officer in Georgia, um, was a candidate in the race. And he was someone who presided over the race for a long time. Um, and so I, there are people who think that their vote didn't count. There are people who think that they wasted their time, that they were sort of allowed. Um, they allowed themselves to think that it could happen um, and only to find out that it really sort of just fell into a pattern of deceit, I think, and, and a, a pattern of um, you know mistreatment uh, uh, of black people, especially as, when it comes to you know, people's constitutional right to vote. A fresh moment with Stacey Abrams all of a sudden feeling just like the same old, same old. Right. Um, when right. Stacey Abrams gave her speech on Friday, it was less of a concession concession speech, though. She was said it that. was not a concession speech. Yeah. And and more of a, hey, I'm going to help tackle these voting issues. What stood out to you, Darren? Yeah, really just her defiance. Um, she's someone who, uh, you know, planned to do this for a really long time. And I think they used all of the sort of tools at their disposal, whether it was the legal system or... Um, really, you know, they set up an entire hotline for voters to 
um, make sure that their votes were being counted. Um, and so they really kind of transformed the campaign into uh, like a voter protection um, organization. Um, and so that, I think you saw her defiance, you saw, um, you know, I think resolve really, um, once it was sort of, um, you know, the, the election was in the bag, um, I think that they sort of shifted to wanting to, um, you know, really protect Georgians' right to vote. 2020 is really just around the corner. And it's something that I think right now they know that they can, there's a lot that they can do to, um, you know, prevent some of these issues from happening in 2020. But in addition to her defiance, I think what you just saw was a, um, a unified um, movement in Georgia, you know, the, the optics of people behind her really kind of leading this charge um, to, uh, for this new organization that she announced that she's going to, to lead. So I think that's the next step for her. I, I think there will be calls and you know, people will be interested to see if she's going to, you know, throw her hat in the ring for 2020 in terms of running for president. It's something that she's talked about wanting to do um, openly. And so uh, right now, I think she's going to focus a lot on Georgia. They're actually bringing a lawsuit. That was the other sort of big news in that speech. Um, they're going to bring federal lawsuit against the state of Georgia for what you saw in this election was a lot of voter suppression. You saw people, um, you know, I think there were 1.5 million voters um, purged from the rolls by that secretary of state, who's now the governor-elect. Um, and so you're going to see a lot of, you know, uh, resistance um, coming out of, of, of uh, th that organization, which is, I think, being called uh, Fair Fight Georgia. Not just letting it move along. Uh, Darren, before we let you go, I did want to highlight this tweet from Stacey Abrams. I appreciate the calls to action, but I ask all of our entertainment industry friends to support what you were just mentioning there, Fair Fight Georgia, but please do not boycott Georgia. The hardworking Georgians who serve on crews and make a living here are not to blame. I promise we will fight and we will win. Mm. So Darren, what's going on there? Um, you saw some people in Hollywood, I think um, a lot of people who are donors or politically active, um, you know, say that if, if Georgia was going to, you know, uh, suppress votes um, and really violate people's constitutional right to vote, um, pairing that with having a, a, a talented, brilliant candidate and someone like Stacey Abrams, um, people like Ron Perlman, I believe, and Alyssa Milano, um, you know, uh, started to say that, look, we're not going to do business in Georgia if, if, if this is how it's going to be. Georgia has a, a booming film uh, and television industry right now. Um, it's one of the um, places that lots of people want to go. There's a wait, I believe, of, you know, I, I can't, I don't know the exact uh, uh, time frame that you have to wait to film in Georgia, but it's something that um, is, is really booming. And, and Stacey Abrams being sort of a woman of the people and um, really a pro-business Democrat. That was something that wasn't really talked a ton about um, this election, but she obviously, uh, you can't really be a, 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 <laughs> a non-business Democrat in Georgia, but um, she's someone who I think understands the importance um, of, of that industry and is someone who's, you know, written stories. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw you know, Hollywood execs kind of looking to some of her books that she's written as a novelist. Um, but I think she understands the importance of that. And, and she called for some of those um, boycotts. I think the hashtag was boycott Georgia, if you're list, uh, interested in looking at what was being said. But um, she's, she wasn't going to stand for that. And I think she, she did the right thing.
All right. Well, Darren Jones, or Darren Sands, I just tried to make you my cousin. I'm sorry. Uh, It's Thanksgiving. (laughs) Sure. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. All right. The timeline is run amok. I know. Uh, with this started a lot of fights. <laughs> I love. Oh, we were keep these opinions coming in. We'll get to them in a moment. I but saw a marshmallow it's, salad. It's, it's ambrosia salad has created a battle. Mm. Oh my goodness! But here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News editor Sarah Mims. For years, John Halpern has said has had to deal with his ballot not being counted in Florida. Why? Because he can't match his signature since he was diagnosed with MS. Halpern said, it made me feel like there's a separate standard because I was disabled. I somehow had to jump through more oops than someone who's able-bodied would have to do. And I really resented that. BuzzFeed News reporter Emma O'Connor joins us now from Florida to talk about her story on John Halpern and other people. Good morning. Hi, guys. How's it going? Doing well here, doing well here. So this story was fascinating to both of us. How did you find out about John Halpern's situation? And do we know if he ever got his vote counted? Yeah, so um, there was a lawsuit. This is kind of how it all began. There was a lawsuit filed by the Democrats after the election over this law um, because they claimed that it was a form of voter suppression. So I was alerted to this problem through that, and then I got in touch with a whole bunch of different people. And actually, uh, the volunteer who helped John sign up for and like get his ballot cured in order for him to vote, he put me in touch with him. Um, and yes, his vote was counted in the end. He just, you'll read it in the article. They had to go through all these processes. And this isn't the first time that he's done this. He's had to do this for the past three years because his signature is now an X um, because he he's paraplegic and his X is not the same. It's really hard for him to write it. So it's not the same every year. And every single year they've had to try to change that. And then his wife went down um, and they told her that, they actually never received his vote and she was brought to tears and eventually it was sorted out. Um, But it's just been a huge effort for both of them for years. Yeah, it seemed exhausting. Eventually sorted out. And I wouldn't say sorted out because if he keeps running into it every time he goes to vote, right? And it does, it seems so draining. So like eventually sorted out, but voting shouldn't be this hard. I wanted to ask Emma, do these kinds of signature laws, do they exist in other states or is it just Florida? Yeah, actually, they exist in 26 other states. Um, In every single state that allows mail-in ballot voting, uh, voting from home, you have to sign the ballot. And then in 26 of those states, they they require that the, the signatures match each other. But the difference in Florida is that all the other states or most of the other states require um, that election officials give the people who have signature issues a certain amount of time. They require that they contact them so they know that they were signature issues. And they also have a bipartisan process to reject those votes and and determine that the signatures are mismatched. And Florida had none of that. So a lot of these people just didn't even know that their vote wasn't counted. Most of them weren't contact. All All of the people that I talked to were not contacted and only found out through volunteers or because they were obsessively checking the news or obsessively checking their vote online. But a lot of people don't know to do that. I was also struck because, of course, your story isn't just about people like John with disabilities like MS. It's also about just age. And and this struck me because I'm like, okay, Florida has a huge retiree population. So can you talk about the way age factors into this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As you said, there's there's a lot of people who can't make it to the polls because they require a lot of help and they can't drive their cars or or for whatever reason, um, because they're older in Florida. It's where people go to retire. Uh, So one of the people I spoke to is actually 100 years old which is crazy. 
And um, he he registered to vote in Florida when he was in his 60s. So obviously his signature has changed from the time he was in his 60s to 100. Um, and so his his vote was rejected. And again, he wasn't contacted. He didn't know. But yeah, that's that's true for older people. And it's true for younger people as well. I don't know if you remember back when you were 18, but I, my signature was very pretty back then. And now I've had to sign a whole bunch of stuff. So it's just like, shoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think mine wouldn't match anymore. So it's kind of both sides of that. Absolutely. I am not lying when I say my signature changes almost daily. Yeah. So I, it's, I understand. Emma, before we let you go, one more important question. What's your favorite Thanksgiving side? Mm. Oh, man. I'd have to go with stuffing, too. I think that was a really good call, Isaac. All right. Stuffing it is. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Emma. Thanks, guys. Man, Bye. you are not lying because everyone is... <sighs> spaghetti has gotten dragged into this argument. No. Spaghetti! Leave spaghetti alone. Spaghetti. Thanksgiving's like the one day that spaghetti gets to take a break. And I retweeted this because I am shook. I don't know if you saw this, but I, we've got, we now have photographic evidence of so-called jello salad. It is even worse than I thought. <laughs> we will continue to talk about this. And besides arguing about Thanksgiving, we're going to get to all of the recount news from Florida when we go live from the district with Paul McLeod in a little bit. But up next, it's time for fire tweets. Can you believe If we can get our hands on it, we could try it. No. <laughs> all-out pandemic. <laughs> the crew, the control room, we got producers in our ears talking about salad. Let's get into some of this. Go ahead. It is, all right. This is wild. <laughs> this is wild. Okay, we have a tweet here from Pixmaven. Let's show it, because this has the photo. She said, mm-hmm. this this is the jello salad she's been discussing. Mm. Look at her giving the finger. Mm. <laughs> That's horrible. But we also have a tweet from Lisa, um, who says their version of this is, we call it a five-cup salad. It's a cup each of sour cream, mandarin oranges, mini marshmallows, coconut, and crushed pineapple. It's weird, but yum. Here's the thing. Lisa, that ain't a salad, that's a crime. I'm, I- <laughs> That is, I hate to do this to a white woman, but I'm calling the cops. That is <laughs> not a to. thing. No, I, here's the thing. I am a don't knock it till you try it kind of person. I have not had these quote unquote salads. I would do a segment. I think we should both do it before the white we break. jumped out. Of course, before you're willing we to try break it. for the holidays. No. You and me, a little Absolutely jello not. salad, a little ambrosia salad, whatever this other marshmallow salad is. These are maybe the salads I could get into. And, is, has, and if someone can tweet us what the rep- recipe for ambrosia salad is, mm. too, because part of this is confusing. Mm-hmm. It is very confusing. This is just wrong. I also saw mm. Princess Leia kind of saying, let's talk mains now. Oh, so let's talk every, about it. everybody's getting dragged into this fight. She said, let's talk about how ham is better than turkey. And I, come on, I really do I believe. Listen, if turkey is done perfectly, it's amazing, mm-hmm. but how many people know how to do it perfectly? No one in my family. All right, let's get into fire it. Tweets. getting hot with these fire Woo. tweets. <laughs> Paul Tompkins, you tweeted, Happening now. The young lady sitting next to me on the plane sneezed, and I said, bless you, and she thanked me. Then she immediately sneezed again, and I said, you only get one, and oh, she did not laugh. Okay, here's the thing, (laughs) Paul. (laughs) It's true, people only get one. But don't be the asshole and say it out no. loud. Like, of course, I feel like, what? I, no, it's a joke. I don't think people do only get one. If I'm I had always, a like, cold and a, a dude turn, I'd roll my eyes too. I liked it. He was trying to have a little fun on that plane, and she Whatever. was just not having it. Sneeze on his face. All right, this next tweet comes from Hool Family Diary. Gary? Uh, me sing Jeopardy. 
is on Netflix. Um, well, that's dumb. Who's gonna watch that crap? Me, five and a half hours later. Make it a true double daily, Brenda, and let's get back in this bitch. <laughs> now, it is true. It is true that Netflix has Jeopardy now. Right. And I've seen pe- a lot of people really excited. Mm-hmm. It's not my, uh, maybe I'll be like this person, but it's not my thing. That's, see, you're in, you're in phase one. Phase two is gonna be all of a sudden you're live tweeting Jeopardy. <laughs> all these Jeopardy stands become your friends. Oh no. It's gonna get wild. <laughs> Julie tweeted, don't ever, ever let a recipe tell you how much garlic to put in. You measure that with your heart. That's, that's absolutely true. That's Speaking accurate. of recipes and cooking for Thanksgiving, that is, that is garlic. Mm. Mm, I love it. Mm. I put garlic powder on things that just, you know, just, just, <laughs> just put it. You know, I don't cook for anything, but I definitely have garlic powder in my kitchen. And just like, you think there's a garlic salad? Oh, God. Okay, <laughs> this next tweet is from D. My paycheck says I got a good job, but my bills say I gotta do better. <laughs> Ooh. Mm. Ooh. That's just what do your student loans say? <laughs> I gotta get another trigger. All right. <laughs> Leonardo <laughs> tweeted, juice really do taste better when you drink it with the refrigerator still open. That's true. That's accurate. True. From the bottle, yep. refrigerator open, no pants on. Delicious. Whoa. <laughs> I'll say this. I've been, we've been talking about water a lot, staying hydrated. I learned I prefer to drink more water if it's room temperature. If it's cold, I drink less. What? No, no. Let me know if you stand in solidarity with me on that. <laughs> we've started enough fights today. Oh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay, tweet of the day comes from S. Great. I'm assuming that's a rapper with face tattoos. S. Great. <laughs> let's go. I can't wait until I'm financially able to afford who I really am. Does that sound like something a rapper with face tattoos would say? I don't know, man. That's how I feel all the time. All right, that's great. That's true. Someday. That's true. Someday. Glizzings are expensive. Coming up, Saeed is <laughs> taking the guilt out of guilty pleasures. But up next, we are going live from the district to check up on the recount news out of Florida with Paul McLeod. Keep arguing. I love it. <laughs> Happy Hunger Games. We are going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Paul McLeod. He's from Canada. Did you know? Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning. All right, so let's get into this tea. Do you even have Thanksgiving in Canada? And if so, uh, what's your favorite Thanksgiving side in Canada? Okay, we do. That's not how my country is pronounced, but anyway, we do. And it's we have it in October, though, and we have it... We have it uh, the Monday off, and so it's actually on like a Sunday, Monday, instead of this Thursday, Friday thing. So we just basically do everything backwards, but the food's about the same, and stuffing, obviously, has to be okay. stuffing. I like that everyone's, everyone's basically in the stuffing family. Uh, I did know when Canadian, thinks, Canadian Thanksgiving was, <laughs> I got real nervous. I got real nervous when you were just like, when is it? Uh, shout out to our uh, viewers in Canada. We deeply respect you. Uh, we love you. Stand in Thanksgiving care solidarity. You. Sorry. This is just, I'm bad. I don't know. I Let's don't know. start with this tweet from the Washington Post, Felicia Sonrez. On Fox News, Senator-elect Rick Scott says Bill Nelson was gracious when he called Sunday to concede. Scott also points finger at county election supervisors when asked about ballot count chaos. Says some local officials just didn't comply with the law. Paul, we've been talking so much about recounts and ballots. Will all this chaos result in any consequences or changes now that the election is over? Well, 
it sort of feels like it's going to head that way right now because everyone on both sides is so angry about how this went down and, and, and embarrassed even. You hear the interviews with people in Florida and they're just sort of shaking their heads that here we go again. Once again, Florida is sort of the laughing stock of the nation. We're already seeing some of the, the fallout from it. Uh, uh, Brenda Snipes, I believe her name is, who is the election supervisor for Broward County, which was where a lot of the <laughs> chaos was happening. She infamously got some rec- recount results in two minutes after the deadline and they didn't count that uh, she has resigned. Uh, we do have these lawsuits that are, are, are still in play and these court decisions that maybe some of the, maybe some of the uh, outcomes of those will, will, will set some precedents that could be helpful. Maybe they'll get new counting machines after seeing how disastrous those were. But on the other hand, it's Florida and nothing ever seems to get better there. So no, I don't really have much faith deep in my heart that Florida is going to figure their shit out. Well, we leave it to the Canadian to be optimistic. I'm sorry, but like, I'm not buying it. Also, the arguments are getting kind of crazy on the timeline. Here's my question for you, Paul. We use midterms often to read the culture, the political culture of a state, and that's obviously very important for the state of Florida. Do we have a sense of what's the read on Florida now going going into 2020? Well, it, it definitely remains a truly swing state. Uh, we, we saw these two races, both for governor and the Senate race, uh, coming down to the wire. We're talking thousands of votes out of 8 million. And then you've also got people very angry on both sides, where uh, uh, you've got allegations of voter fraud, allegations of voter suppression. Uh, so, no, it's, I mean, it's all, a, it's all a big mess, and it doesn't look like there's going to be any clarity. We see it with a lot of states, you know, they, they go, get more red or they get more blue, and we get sort of more of an idea of where the, where the voters stand there. But, no, we got, we've got no clarity whatsoever from Florida. All right, let's talk about what we do know, which is that uh, Scott won. Is that going to change the tide at all in the Senate? I wouldn't say it would change the tide. We, we kind of already knew by now that Republicans had uh, certainly avoided the worst fate of, of losing control of the Senate and that they were going to pick up one or two Senate seats. So, no, I mean, it certainly helps, especially when you've got thin margins like they do uh, and you're trying to, I mean, you know, we've seen bills go down because they couldn't get that key 50th vote. So every every Senate seat helps. But, no, I wouldn't say this is, this is sort of a, a generational tide-turning type of result, really, That'll be 2020. That's when we have a lot more Republicans who are up for uh, re-election, and that is when Democrats will be hoping to take control of the Senate. Can't wait for that to start. Oh, wait, it already has. Well, here's a tweet from Washington Post reporter Aaron Blake. The CIA says with high confidence that Crown Prince Mohammed bin al-Salman ordered Jamal Khashoggi's killing. President Trump, will anybody really know? All right, will anybody really know? Paul, that came out of the president's interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News. He's promised a report from the CIA on Tuesday, but hasn't the CIA CIA already reached a conclusion? Yeah, the CIA has reached a conclusion, and it was uh, leaked through the Washington Post that they they basically found what everyone believed to be true, which was that this went all the way to the top, right, to MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, that he was involved in the killing and uh, essentially uh, ordered it, I mean, or at least at the very least knew about it and was aware of it, which, again, we all suspected. Um, so how much more detail there is to that and, and, and uh, what they'll be breaking down to Trump. Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't, we don't know. But yeah, like the, the big uh, conclusion is out there. 
this is just all surreal. And I mean, as we are talking about Thanksgiving and family and friends, do we know for this story, for example, if Jamal Khashoggi's return, um, remains have been returned to his family? And, uh, no, I believe they're still missing formally, you know, missing in air quotes there. But uh, uh, yeah, no, there's been no resolution on that, I believe. Okay, um, can we expect any kind of impact from this report on Tuesday? I mean, that's really tough to say because, I mean, it comes down, that, and the whole thing with the story, it all comes down to this, this position that the United States is in where they are allied pretty closely with Saudi Arabia. They have a strong economic relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, they, uh, strategically, as a, as a counterpoint to Iran, are relying on Saudi Arabia. So what do you do when your ally murders someone, murders a reporter? Uh, is Trump going to be the guy who comes out and says, you know, we're canceling our arms shipments? Uh, we're going to we're going to level tariffs. We're gonna we're gonna we're, we're gonna change the nature of this relationship. It's hard to say. He so far has not given indications that that is the way he's going. He has questioned whether or not uh, this is, is true that uh, this assassination went all the way to the top. He has questioned whether or not it is knowable. It is certainly, I would say, uh, there's a very strong possibility, to put it lightly, that the, that, that the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia ends up overcoming whatever the anger and the outrage is over the murdering of this journalist, and that Trump, uh, I don't know, maybe like there's some, there's some show of disapproval that you know maybe uh, something gets sanctioned, but that it, it never goes beyond that. Wow, incredibly disturbing and sad. Um, Paul, hate to end on that note, but thank you as always for joining us. All right, thanks guys, cheers. All right, up next, uh, Stephanie is talking about food waste this Thanksgiving. So, you know, take those gross sides and find a better way to recycle them, I guess. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thanksgiving yet, and people are already sharing their ideas and recipes for leftovers because some people think that is the best part of Thanksgiving. I don't know, let me know. But there's more you can be doing all year round to help eliminate food waste. And Evan Hanser is the head chef at Egg in Brooklyn and joins me now. Evan, thank you so much for talking to me about this really important topic. Of course, thanks for having me here. So you're known for farm-to-table cooking. When does sustainability become such a big issue for you? Pretty much when I started cooking, I was lucky to start at a restaurant that put a ton of focus on farm-to-table cooking. We were getting fresh vegetables, fresh whole animals, and from that point, you know, learning how to use them uh, to the fullest. We didn't want to waste anything because we knew the people who were growing this stuff. So I think from the beginning, I was able to get the message that this is just how you do things, not that it was necessarily something special or something we had to try to do. That's such an interesting point. Yeah, I guess if you know the person who's growing, say, the vegetables, you feel guilty throwing them away. Totally, yeah. But, you know, we as Americans, we're so disconnected from the food process and, you know, the, how the food is grown and we just buy in the grocery store. Why do you think that food waste is such a big issue for Americans? You know, it's, it's an issue because I, I think a lot of people don't have a close relationship to food, both in the cooking of it or in the production of it. Um, we sort of distance ourselves from... Uh, the process of getting food from a seed all the way to our table, which you know our grandparents, for example, would not have had that distance. And you see in countries like America, the first world countries, a lot of the food waste that happens happens at the consumer side because people don't place the same sort of value on it. Whereas if you go to a developing country, more of that waste will happen on the production side because once um, a family gets the food, they're going to put it to use because it has, has its significance. So I think we've just sort of lost some of that understanding about 
what our relationship to food is really. Um, and I think learning about that and reclaiming that will cause us all to put a little more emphasis on how we use the food that we buy uh, and hopefully cut down on what we're wasting. That's such an interesting point that I've never thought about before. Of course, if you are more connected to how the food has grown, you're going to put a lot more value exactly. into it. So what does the James Beard Foundation's Waste Not Initiative do to combat this issue? So Waste Not is basically trying to bring us back to that understanding of our relationship to food uh, and to teach consumers or reteach us how to put every bit of food to waste. So that could be using a whole ingredient when you buy it um, from root to leaf, or it could be using leftovers um, in a creative way the next day. So I have a breakfast restaurant in Brooklyn. We do tons of hashes, uh, you know, fried rice, uh, savory oatmeal, and there, there are all sorts of palettes up upon which you can put leftovers from the day before. So this book has a bunch of tips from great chefs around the country, uh, how, to, how to use the whole stem of broccoli, for example, how to use the carrot greens, but also when you've made a meal the night before, what do you do to reuse that product in a new and exciting way so it doesn't feel like you're just eating le sad leftovers by yourself, you know, at, at, for, sure. for breakfast. Not eating the same thing every single day. Well, there's also a Waste Not Cookbook, which you talked about a little bit. Can you give us a little bit of a preview of what else is in there? Sure. I mean, you can get the whole thing. It's out now. Um, but there's chefs from out, around the country. I have a couple recipes in there. One is, um, you know, everyone eats and not everyone loves, but most people eat broccoli. Mm -hmm. um, but usually, I found when I was younger, we'd buy broccoli and then you wouldn't use the whole stem, you'd use the leaves. Uh, the florets. Um, so one thing you can, there are so many things you can do with the stem. You can cut those sort of into thick pieces and grill them and they have this really great crunchy texture. You can dice them into small pieces and use them as a vinaigrette. So sort of looking at ingredients in a, in a different way, uh, in a way you might not have think, thought about them before. And because it's chefs from around the country cooking in many different styles, there's all sorts of different cultural backgrounds and cuisines that are represented there. So you can find something that fits your flavor you know, throughout the whole book. I think one of the big things with Thanksgiving, which obviously is this week, is that we make all these huge dishes that are so right. filling and then people only eat like little tiny bits of it. Yeah. I, I hosted Thanksgiving uh, last year and that was something I found. It was like, oh, I know I have so many leftovers. Right. So if we're interested in food sustainability, what is one way that we can make our Thanksgiving more sustainable so we at least can make sure we're not wasting all of this great food we made? Totally. I mean, I think you already said it, right? It's like we have a, this uh, need for a, a bountiful spread and that happens in supermarkets where they stock too much food that is never going to get bought. It happens when we cook for friends at home because you want to make it look you know, full and, and welcoming and abundant. I think sort of scaling that back and understanding that you want to buy as much as you need, cook as much as you need. If you have leftovers, be sure you put them to use. I mean, we've gotten to the point, thankfully, uh, at our Thanksgiving where as soon as we've cut up the turkey and we've taken the roasted vegetables out of the pan, we'll put those in a pot, put some water on it, and simmer it and turn it into a stock. And then actually as people finish eating, take their drumstick bones, they drop them in the pot and let that simmer away. And you'll have that broth you know, for weeks or months if you freeze it. We make things like turkey ramen, turkey soup, use it to make extra gravy. Um, so I think just trying to look at everything on your plate or everything on your spread and think about how can I, how can I make this delicious again? That's so smart. I've never even thought about that. Well, now, now you know. Now, now you I know. Sense. Now I know. Now I have a tip. Well, Evan, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned so much. Up next, Saeed and Nora Dominic are taking the guilt out of guilty pleasures. Here's a tweet from Emil. Wow, when I was watching the first season of Vanderpump Rules, 
As it aired and raving about it, people told me it was utter trash, and now Vanderpump Rolls, of course, is in vogue. Look who's laughing now, losers. <laughs> revenge, revenge. I love those kinds of tweets. All right, BuzzFeed staff writer Nora Dominic, my TV sis, uh, joins me now to discuss why TV fans are embracing shows that were once called guilty pleasures. Hi. Hey, thanks so much Hi. for having me. You know this subject is close to my yes. heart, because I love a good non-guilty pleasure. <laughs> but let's start here. Um, aside from it's created and run by white men, yes. uh, what traditionally <laughs> separates the idea of prestige TV, you know, Mad Men and, and those kinds of shows, from so-called guilty pleasures? I think it was always, like, in the early days of TV, if it was mm -hmm. on HBO, AMC, okay. Showtime, like, that already gave it a leg up. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, like, you're looking at, like, Emmy nominations and, like, writing nominations mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And whereas Guilty TV, I feel like, traditionally was for a teen audience most okay. of the time. People didn't really want to talk about it. It mm -hmm. maybe didn't have great storylines, mm -hmm. but you enjoyed like the mystery or like the weird twists, like the twin that came out of nowhere right. and like that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and listen, I some of my I'm no stranger to this. I love Boss Baby. There's the movie. Yes, <laughs> there's the movie. I just finished season two of the Netflix series <laughs> Boss Baby. It's so it's the best workplace comedy. <laughs> <laughs> around. Um, do you feel it's fair to say it's maybe gotten easier for people or less taboo for people to like talk about non-guilty pleasures? Definitely. I think 100%. Like you said, like you can definitely find even an online community yeah. that I'm sure loves the boss baby mm -hmm. yep, or yep. any other guilty. I have a lot of eight-year-old friends. See, you know, that's how you do it. <laughs> um, that loves the show you mm -hmm. like and you can talk about it. And I definitely think Netflix in general has... Uh, and like streaming mm -hmm. allows you to watch a guilty pleasure and like you find people you want to talk about it with, mm -hmm. not necessarily watching it week to week and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Oh, so maybe it's like the binge factor. I think maybe is the helping. binge factor. Because mm -hmm. like even like Friends currently, like mm -hmm. Gossip Girl I know was like a guilty mm -hmm. pleasure to someone it was on. Mm -hmm. And like Friends find it now because people just continuously are talking about it. Absolutely. And it's not, it hasn't gone away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of Gossip Girl, yes. because of you, <laughs> I just last, just as last night, started watching Riverdale yes. on CW, which I know is a show you like as yes. well. Y'all, it's wild. <laughs> I'm living for the dramatics. Um, what's the most, because there's a lot going on. Yep. I'm like six episodes into the first season. What's one of the more um, delightful, non-prestigious storylines on the show? I feel because... like it's definitely, you've got people that are secretly siblings. Yes. You've got... <laughs> You, you know, <laughs> I knew that was yeah. coming. You've no got, spoilers. You've but. got the teen TV tropes that uh -huh. they really just kind of slide into, which I personally love. Yep. I think they're so fun. Like the twin coming out of nowhere, the secret sibling mm -hmm. whose parent is actually like evil, like yes. that kind of thing. Yeah, and I love it has the, the um, this is true for, of course, a lot of traditional soap operas, but the claustrophobia of a multi-generational culture yes. in a town where it's not just the kids, it's their parents. Yes. And your dad used to date my mom. And, and you've da -da 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 -da. got all those layers that come into yes. play. Yeah. Oh, I just love <laughs> it. Um, and how does Riverdale, because of course I was thinking of Gossip Girl a lot while watching yes. it. Um, how does uh, Riverdale's popularity now, because people talk about it all the time, compare to shows like Pretty Little Liars yes. and Gossip Girl when it was on the air? Yeah. I think definitely it has something to do with just social media today. Mm -hmm. Like the stars are just so big on social media mm -hmm. and people love connecting with them. So I think that's one thing. But also I think it's talking about 
it with other people. Mm. Like you love live, people love live tweeting it. Yep. People love the theories behind it. Cause it's also unlike Gossip Girl, more of a like a noir show okay. where yeah. there's a mystery going mm-hmm. on and people, and like Pretty Little Liars did the same thing right. where you want to try to figure out the mystery before somebody else mm-hmm. and you want to read theories and that kind of thing. So I think that's also why it's just like connecting with other people. Yeah, it seems like even in the middle of the day, it's always night yes, in Riverdale. exactly. I love it's that. It's night, it's like 1940s, uh-huh. but they have cell phones and you're yeah. not quite sure what's happening. Totally. It's raining during yes. the prep rally. Exactly. Absolutely. I love it. Well, I would like to do this. For people who are still nervous about talking about their guilty pleasures on the timeline or whatever, could you just give one last appeal? Like, come on out. I Guilty pleasures are truly one of my favorite shows. Mm. It's... Um, shows I enjoy the most. I love talking about them, especially because, like, if you watch Riverdale and I watch Riverdale, you can talk about how insane it can be, mm-hmm. and that's like part of the fun of, I Absolutely. think, a guilty pleasure. Absolutely, we're going to talk about uh, Archie's music teacher. We got it uh, uh, during the break. Okay, thank you so much Thanks for, for joining me. me. I love talking with Nora <laughs> about TV, Twitter. We want to hear from you as well. Stop arguing about Thanksgiving sides for one moment. <laughs> what TV show do you show? Do you love? And certainly, don't feel guilty about. Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Don't be shy. Up next, John Standen is going to talk about his latest episode in the Netflix series from BuzzFeed News. Follow this. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed senior national correspondent John Stanton. Latest follow this episodes are live on Netflix. In my new episode, I look into the role hip hop plays within MS-13's culture and how the gang uses music to recruit members and enforce its code. John joins me now to talk about his reporting. Good morning, John, how are you? Good, I'm good, how are you? Doing all right. Um, I really love this episode. Uh, We hear a lot about MS-13 from the president, obviously, but could you just explain a little bit of the history of MS-13? How did they come to the US? Yeah, well, that's actually interesting. They, they didn't actually come to the U.S. They uh, started in the U.S. In the late 70s, early 80s, MS-13 was, um, was a gang in, uh, in Los Angeles, and it was... Uh, sorry, my kitty's trying to get on the show. Uh, it was um, uh, you know, already there when El Salvadorians were start, started being, uh, uh, fleeing El Salvador because of the Civil War, and they ended up in L.A. They needed a gang, frankly, to protect them from other gangs and, and from the police in L.A. So they ended up joining MS-13. And then in 1994, the Clinton administration began the first real big wave of mass deportations of Central Americans. And that exported MS-13 to El Salvador, where they really took hold. And given the government's sort of corruption and a lack of power um, by the government, they were able to uh, really kind of refine their particular brand of, of uh, ultraviolence that they're known for now. Same for the people in the back. Where did it start again, John? in the United States of America, and it was exported from us to El Salvador. So while the president likes to make the claim that they're sending over bad guys here, we actually did that to them. All right, now why did you want to focus specifically on MS-13's music culture? Well, I think the music is a really good way of of understanding people and understanding um, groups and cultures. And um, and with MS-13 in particular, they are very, very much into hip hop. They sort of came of age as a, as a gang in the late 80s and early 90s. It's sort of the birth of like the golden era of hip hop. And um, it became an instrumental part of who they are. And, you know, looking at them from the outside, it's hard to understand how they operate, uh, frankly, as an outsider. So I thought that it would be a good way to figure out sort of the mechanics of the gang and sort of the rules they have and that kind of thing. A good angle. And I want to listen to a snippet of one of the songs you play in the episode. I think we've got it. Fíjense, 
All right, now, could you tell me a little bit about that song and what that's about, John? Yeah, this is the song is um, it's pretty typical uh, of um, MS-13 hip hop. It's done by a member of the gang. Um, it's one of the more popular ones. Um, the way that they that, that they do their songs, they have a pretty standard structure. They have they start off with a bunch of shout outs to their homeboys. Um, and to people that are either living or dead that were within the gang. Um, and then the rest of the song is kind of about how badass MS-13 is, the kinds of things that they will do to you if uh, you come up against them, um, some of their murders maybe, and they back into more shout-outs to homeboys. All right, now how do members of MS-13 record and distribute these songs? Are there any members that are like stars within the group? There aren't, there aren't stars per se. There are some that are, have become very popular within the gang though. Um, primarily these days, the way they do it is they use cell phones and home production outfits. Uh, in El Salvador, there are production studios, however, and companies that, that do do um, just um, MS-13 songs. Um, but there are also people that are recording inside of jails. There's sort of an infamous MS-13 song that was recorded by um, members of the gang that are in jail in uh, Italy. And it was a shout out to all their homeboys across the world. Wow. And now this is this is where we're focused obviously on MS-13, but is it representative of the hip hop culture in El Salvador in general? Yeah, no, not at all. I think this is a thing that the hip hop as a, as a culture broadly has struggled with for a long time, that, that um, people start to associate all of hip hop with, with sort of these violent members of the community, right? And in reality, most of um, El Salvadoran hip hop is, is not violent at all. They have a very, very active and large um, conscious hip hop uh, um, seen in El Salvador right now with you know hundreds of people there and uh, there's also sort of pop hip-hop and, and all of that so this is not all of all of the, the, the Salvador hip-hop now. But I read your piece this morning it seems like the police maybe aren't super clear on that. Yeah um, yeah I think that the, the, so the police have very broad authority to go after anyone for almost anything. Um, their their anti-gang laws allow them for instance to detain you indefinitely if you have tattoos if you're wearing baggy pants or uh, jerseys from American um, sports teams, anything that looks like you're into hip hop, uh, because they've associated that with the gangs. And what that's translating into increasingly in the country is um, an excuse to go after a lot of the MCs and producers and DJs that are um, critical of the government. And um, over the last few years, about 20 uh, people in the hip hop community have been disappeared and, and no one knows where they are. Uh, at least one, um, Blaze One, who was a, an MC and was very, very vocally critical of the government, uh, he died in custody. And then there's been about you know, 19 or more that have just disappeared and no one knows what's happened to them. That's incredibly troubling. Uh, listen, you spoke with experts, you spoke with law enforcement, and you spoke with former members of MS-13 for this episode. Uh, let's take a look at one of those conversations. I appreciate you coming up to talk to us. Um, let's talk a little bit about music. Rap plays a, like a big part in the culture of the of the gang. These kind of songs, you know, invite people, you know, join gangs, you know, and when you join the gang, you know what does that mean? If you wanna be a homeboy, you have to make a hit. My clip has to be a tree. Yeah, and so like the songs keep them going, right? Like, like once they're in, it's like, well, you gotta try to become the guy they sing about someday. There's a few songs that even me, when I listen to them, I feel scary. When I listen to it, I feel scary. What is this former gang member's story, John? 
Well, he was um, uh, a member of MS-13. He had a clique in um, Northern Virginia that he became um, the homeboy uh, that ran it. Uh, he was pretty, pretty, pretty high up, frankly, in sort of the organizational structure of the gang, such that exists. And then he ended up um, uh, being arrested and then started working with the police. And he's now on the run. And um, the songs that have been done about him, you know, they have to be, uh, one of the interesting things about these songs is that they have to go to sort of the elders within the gang to, to see if it's okay for them to be naming specific people. And they have to have done something really big, either a certain number of murders or um, have done something for the gang that has really sort of helped them or whatever. And in his case, he was responsible for several murders. And that's how he got um, his name shouted out in, in songs. All right, well, John, thank you so much as always for all of your in-depth reporting. Pleasure. All right, you can watch John's episode of Follow This on Netflix right now and check out his piece, which is the episode is based on, which we published this morning. It's an incredible read. Up next, it's gonna be your tweets. Great AM to DM Thanksgiving Sides War of 2018. I'm just picturing that uh, as a giant food fight. I'm just picturing that people are actually throwing the foods there. Here's some tea. Y'all have started DMing me about other people's food opinions. <laughs> and you're just gonna out it Multiple like that? people. I am not, y'all are like, oh, oh wow. There are like multiple fronts. There's a lot going on. Woo! One of the late contenders, like a new player has joined the game. Oh no. Uh, that, that I saw was cranberry sauce. Oh. We didn't even discuss it. Canned. Canned? Canned. Canned. It's just good. I agree, oh, but you like it. You're into oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I saw some yeah, people yeah. being like, why are you getting so mad at Jell-O, but you're eating this cranberry sauce out of a can that is kind of <laughs> basically conjecture. cranberry Jell-O? Well, one, because I don't call it cranberry salad. <laughs> <laughs> and two, because it's good. <laughs> and because I've had, I tried one year, one year the fancy cranberry and everything, and it's just, it's, you know. There's stems in it. Yeah, it's, it's not just not me. all it's cracked up to be. Well, here's what Kirsten Baptiste has to say about this war we are all now engaged in and we'll fight for the rest of our lives. I'm making mac and cheese this year. Ooh, and it's Angela Davis's recipe, so boop! Will you Ooh. please share that? I didn't know she had a recipe for mac and cheese. I'm excited because I'm interviewing Patti LaBelle later this week and many years, yeah, we're just gonna like slide that in there. And many years, my family's made the, um, uh, what is what you call it? The over the rainbow mac and cheese. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm, I, I, it feels rude to ask a guest like, can you come cook some? Stuff? Can you just get <laughs> me some but, recipes? Yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Share that recipe, please. <laughs> yeah, please. Softy thirty eight says, I am the weirdo that needs a bacon and Brussels sprout side dish. I'll allow it. I like that. Yeah, I would almost say yeah. that's not. That's not. That's, that's fine. That's delicious. That's fine. That's just. Brussels sprouts and bacon are good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta have a good spread. Mm -hmm. And bacon and Brussels sprouts are wonderful mm -hmm. together. I like that. Absolutely. It's logical. It's logical. Carol Perry says sweet potato casserole with little melted marshmallows all over the top. Listen, we don't even have to argue with that because that's just canon. Like, you've got to have sweet potato with little marshmallows. You do not? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That's just, you are in good company. I'm into it, but then Marshmallow got into other products, and I think that's when people started having worries and concerns. <sighs> Went a little crazy. Worries and just concerns. Just a little on top of the sweet potatoes. Sherry Foreman says, a bit boring, but turnip and carrots mashed together with a bit of brown sugar. Love turnip, but it's a pain in the ass to peel and make. So once a year it is. Huh. Oh, that's kind of nice. 
I don't I mean, know if a great I've reason had, for it to be a holiday dish. I haven't uh, had turnips like and mashed to together. It. Is it like mm-hmm. like mashed potato? Yeah, or like a squash mash too. Yeah, interesting. Absolutely. And speaking of, um, so I'm watching this show, which is such a great uh, Twitter name, uh, Squash Casserole. I can get down with some squash casserole. <laughs> I like it. I mean, listen, the holiday is all about bounty. You know why? That's true. Why not just add it? Kind of the point. Add it all. Let's end the fighting. But no, 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 (laughs) no! You keep your Jello adult salads away from my Thanksgiving meal. I'll let you know. I'll try it. Thank you to our guests, Darren Sands, Emma O'Connor, Paul McLeod, Stephanie McNeil, Evan Hasner, Nora Dominic, and John Stanton for joining us this morning. We will be right here tomorrow, same time, same place, same timeline. I guess. Uh, (laughs) I feel like I had one more same. Same side. Show. Same show.